You are now listening to the February 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. It's Terry from the program Near My God to Thee. It is said that grace is God's gift given to those who are unworthy. As humans, it is very rare for us to give a gift for someone who is unworthy. We may do a small favor for someone. For example, we may do a small favor by giving a meal or a few dollars to a homeless person who is a person we don't know and have no relations with. However, we wouldn't give our clothes, wallets, cars, and houses to a homeless person. If someone gave a homeless person his car and house, the homeless person receiving such things would be confused and doubtful. We are the same way. If someone did a favor or poured grace upon us without any reason, we may think, Why is that person treating me so well? Is he expecting something in return? Is he going to ask me for something? Of course, not everyone is this way, but many people are. For this reason, there are people who can't easily accept the grace of God's salvation. Some may say, even though God is love, He wouldn't love someone like me. How can someone like me be saved? Although everyone in the world may receive salvation, God can't do anything about a sinner like me. The person who wrote the hymn we'll share today was someone who couldn't easily accept God's love and grace. Let's first listen to the hymn. the first verse. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This well-known hymn is called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. William Cowper of England wrote this hymn. As mentioned, William Cowper was a person who couldn't accept God's grace. How did he end up writing such a wonderful hymn? We'll find out through a drama. (music) 
1731, William Cooper was born in England from a father who was a clergyman and a mother from a royal family. He studied law and earned a license as a lawyer, but he never worked as a lawyer. It's because he had severe depression and stage fright. Cooper had a frail body ever since he was young. He was timid and grew up as an introverted child. His introvert personality became extremely severe after his mother died when he was six years old. His physical body was growing, but he was always missing his mother who passed away and didn't mature normally into an adult. He showed severe symptoms of depression and attempted to commit suicide several times. He also received treatment at a mental hospital for 18 months. Ever since he was young, he heard about God's love and Jesus Christ's atonement from his father, who was a clergyman, but in his heart, he always had a firm belief that God wouldn't save a worthless person like himself. Brother William, God loves you. God didn't spare his only son, Jesus Christ, and sent him for you. Why don't you believe his love? There's no way. Why would God love a failure like me? I cannot do anything. I'm afraid. Afraid of everything. I'm afraid of living. God can't do anything for a person like me. William's situation didn't get any better. He always believed that God would never save someone like him. However, in such a grim situation, there was one thing that was unusual. It's that he read the Bible. He learned to read the Bible at a young age through his father, so he often read the Bible in such a situation. One day, he was in a mental hospital receiving treatment. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe that God would save someone like me. Why would God save a failure like me? I just can't believe it. Although he thought that way, William held the Bible in his hand that day and opened to Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. <sighs> what does this mean? All have sinned, but they have been justified freely by his grace? God did this by the blood of Jesus? Ah, uh, I see. God didn't save me because I'm worthy to be saved. God saved me through the blood of Jesus Christ because I'm a sinner and I can't do anything. How could this be? How could this be? Through the scripture from the book of Romans, William was moved when he read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When William Cooper turned 33, he gained assurance of salvation by confessing that Jesus is Savior by the grace of God, and began to receive healing from his darkened soul. God sent him a good mentor to help his faith to mature. Five years later, God allowed William to meet Pastor John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Pastor John Newton prepared a house in a quiet countryside for William. William, isn't it good that you're here in the quiet countryside where the air is fresh and you're able to draw closer to God? Yes, it's great. Reading the Bible in nature makes it seem like I'm closer to the Lord. As you're living here in nature, why don't you write a poem while thinking of the Lord? Oh, I was thinking the same thing. I wanted to meditate upon the Lord here and write. 
Is that so? That's great. I hope you'll write many wonderful poems. <laughs> William meditated upon the Bible and wrote a poem. One day, he read Zechariah chapter 13. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Ah, this is God's grace. Jesus Christ's blood, which is like a fountain, washed away all my sin and impurity and saved me. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you so much for the grace of salvation. William was moved while reading Zechariah and wrote a poem called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. God allowed Pastor John Newton and William Cowper to meet. Together, they published The Only Hymns, a book that was widespread and sung by church members. Of a total of 349 hymns contained in the Only Hymnal Book, William Cowper wrote 67 of them. God's grace cannot be understood by human logic. As we look at William Cowper's life, we see that accepting that grace is the grace of God. Believing that Jesus Christ forgives our sins and gives us eternal life is also the grace of God. I hope we can share that grace with others. We'll end Nearer My God to Thee. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Sinners plunged
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, Are You in the Crowd or the Called? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Today I want to show you a clear contrast between two groups of people, the crowd and the called. And I want to point blank ask you right where you are sitting right now, which group are you in? So we're going to see in the next few minutes a large crowd of people who thought they were following Jesus, but the reality is they were not following Jesus. And then we're going to see a small group of the called who experienced what it means to truly follow Jesus. And I just want to ask you the question, are you in the crowd or the called? I want to show you that your life today and your life for all of eternity hinges on the choice between the two. Let me show you this in Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. So Jesus withdrew to his disciple, with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And you see this other group, verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, who betrayed him. So, how do you know? If you're in the crowd or in the called, what's the difference between the two? I want to show you three characteristics of each group that I think will help you identify 
which group you're in. So here's the first characteristic of the crowd. They saw Jesus as a means to an end. They saw Jesus as a means to an end. This is something we see all over Jesus' life. As time and time again, people who come to Jesus do so to get what they want. This crowd wanted to be healed of their diseases. They wanted evil spirits cast out of them. So they pressed in around him, just trying to touch him in order to get what they wanted. And it's not that they wanted Jesus. They wanted these things, healing, deliverance, whatever it was, and Jesus was a means to those things. And that's clear because there are many points in the Gospels, and specifically the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus doesn't give the crowds all they want and they leave. And this is so important because we are all tempted in the same way to do the same thing, to see Jesus merely as a means to an end or various ends in our lives. And we can even call ourselves Christians and create a whole picture of Christianity that merely uses Jesus as a means to get a variety of good things in our lives. Is that possible? It most definitely is. I've used this illustration before. Imagine you are stranded at sea in danger of losing your life in the water. And then off in the distance, you see a boat that's coming to rescue you. And of course, you want that lifeboat to save you, and you will gladly get into that boat in order to live. But that doesn't necessarily mean you love the captain of that boat. It's possible to love rescue, but not love the rescuer. And if we're not careful, this is what our faith will consist of. And what we'll call Christianity, crowds of people who don't want to go to hell and who will gladly take a supposed lifeboat to heaven, but when you look at our lives, it's questionable whether or not we actually want the captain of the boat. In other words, it's possible for a whole lot of people to gratefully enjoy all kinds of good gifts from God and even thank God for those good gifts. But when it comes down to it, our hearts are not actually for the giver. Our hearts are for the gifts. Can I just raise my hand at this point and say that I have been guilty of this? That I have been guilty of using Jesus as a means to an end in my life. Did you hear it in what we just read? Jesus called these disciples not to get this or that from him. He called them to do what? So that, here's the purpose, so that they might be with him. Be with him. He called him to be with him, to be with Jesus. Not to get this or that from Jesus, just to be with him. Is that your desire? Just to be with 
Jesus, because this is true faith according to the Bible. Think Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing, he says, more than any other thing, I just want to dwell with God. That's all I want. I just want to look at him. I just want to look at him. I just want to talk to him. He is all I want. In our family worship time two nights ago, Isaiah, our eight-year-old, told the parable of the pearl of great value. This man who sold everything he had, Matthew 13 tells us to buy one pearl because it was worth more than everything else he had put together. And we talked about how this is Jesus, how he is worth more than everything else we have put together. Even all the good things that we have and we enjoy and we discuss. We're like, what are some things like that? What are the good things that we're prone to seek or to look to more than God? And we just started listing it. Like family and friends and football and a good reputation and money and possessions and all kinds of good things. And we prayed, God, help us to enjoy these good gifts. But more than any of them, to want and treasure you. Because this is where life is found. Not in the gifts, but in the giver. Like, listen to the end of James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, Walking through times where you lose good things, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who go to church? No. To those who go through religious motions? No. To those who are good at family or friends or football or have a good reputation or a good job or a good amount of money? No. To those who love God. This, this is where life is found in love for God. That's the whole point of what James says right after this. He says, you say you believe in God, big deal. Even the demons believe in God. The question is, do you know him and do you love him? Remember Jesus' warning about this, Matthew chapter 7, talking about the day of judgment that every single one of us will one day face as we stand before God and Jesus says on that day many there's the crowd many will say to me Lord Lord do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty many mighty works in your name and I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness like many will say I did all kinds of things in your name. And Jesus will tell many people on that day, I never even knew you. So just pause and ask. That's right. Set this question. It determines life now and your life for all of eternity. Do you know God? Do you love God? Is looking upon and speaking to God the one thing that you want? Or do you actually want a lot of other things in this world? And God, Jesus, is just a means to those things for you. Honestly look at the evidence of your life and ask the question, is God the 
end for you? Or is God a means to the end for you? Let me just close this point by making crystal clear. We have created, and many of you have been sold, an entire understanding of Christianity today that sees Jesus as a means to an end. Come to Jesus and get fill in the blank. In some settings, it's come to Jesus and get health. Come to Jesus and get wealth. Come to Jesus and get prosperity in this world. Or maybe it's just come to Jesus and get peace. Come to Jesus and get joy. Come to Jesus and get abundance. Come to Jesus and get heaven. None of those things are ultimately the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is come to Jesus and get Jesus. He's the one we need. He's the one we want. He's the one from whom all these things flow. They're found in Him. He's the giver. And we need Him. And He's better than all the best things of this world put together. And the good news of the Bible is the one who is better than all the best things of this world put together wants us. So keep going here. The crowd came to Jesus because all that Jesus could do for them, that's what Mark chapter 3 verse 8 said, they heard all that he was doing, could do for so many people, so they came from everywhere because they heard what Jesus could do for them. But look at the called. They came because they realized Jesus desired them. Did you hear that language in this story? Jesus goes up on a mountain and he calls to himself those whom he desired. And they came to him. They came. Why? Because they realized this man who even the demons recognized was the Son of God, God in the flesh, the one with all authority over demons and diseases, the one who has authority to give life, he desired them. He was calling them to himself by name, each of them. Like When you see the crowd, you see this whole list of places, right? And it goes on and on and on. You see that word, and, over and over again. This great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Like, all these generally places that tons of people are coming from. So that's the picture we see with the crowd. But then, with the called, you see the same language, only the emphasis is completely different. Jesus appointed, set apart, called 12 people. And then we have their individual names, Simon, James, and John, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, 
and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus desired each one of them. And they came to him. Do you realize this? Do you feel the wonder here? Do you realize, you feel the wonder of the reality that Jesus desires you? And not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you, like you, right where you're sitting right now. Jesus, the Creator and Lord of life in whom all joy and peace and love reside, the King over all the universe, Jesus desires you. Put your name in the blank. And I know this because God has said so. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. Is patient towards you, not wishing, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus desires you not to experience death, but to experience eternal life. Jesus desires you in that way. So here's the last distinction between the crowd and the called. The crowd, they only focus on what they can receive from Jesus. And I do want to be careful in this description of the crowd because obviously when we want Jesus and we are with Jesus, There are so many good things Jesus gives, including peace and joy and life and heaven. There's so much to receive from Jesus. But there's a difference here between the crowd and the called because the crowd only focuses on what they can receive from Jesus. But the called, they ultimately realize they are representatives of Jesus. Did you see it? At the called... Come to be with him and. Did you hear the language? So that, called so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And that word means to proclaim good news. It doesn't, doesn't mean, don't, don't think, stand behind a podium in front of a large group of people. Like, yes, I hope this is preaching, but... Uh, this is, this is you sitting across the table from your family member or friend or coworker or neighbor and telling them the good news of how much God loves them. Jesus says, I've called you to be with me and then to go out and to proclaim this good news with my authority. Right before this verse, we read about Jesus' authority over demons, unclean spirits, how he can tell them what to do and they do it. And Jesus says, I'm giving you my authority. Now, as soon as we read this, we realize this is obviously a special group here in Mark chapter 3, these apostles, which the word literally means sent ones, who had a unique role to play in the founding of the church. But this call was obviously not just for them. And we know that because of the words we say to one another every single week we leave this gathering. When Jesus said to all of his disciples, all authority, there it is, 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the clear implication is, I'm sending you out with my authority. That's why it says, therefore, in light of that, with my authority, go and make disciples of all nations, proclaim the gospel, lead other people to follow me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, do this in all nations, and I will be with you every step of the way. Do you see it? The crowd is only about what they can receive from Jesus. The called realize they have been sent out as representatives of Jesus. They've been called to be with him and to go out proclaiming him to the world around them. This is what we are called to do. So are you doing this? Are you going out into the city, wherever God leads among the nations, proclaiming Jesus? That's what this small group of the called in Mark chapter 3 would become known for. You look at this list, with the exception of Judas, who betrayed Jesus, every single person in this initial group would give. All but one would lose their lives proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's what the call do. And in this way, in Jesus calling this group of disciples to be with him and sending them out to share his love, Jesus was turning the world upside down. We realized, like, this is where it all started. And there's thousands of us in just this church family alone gathered together singing the praises of Jesus. Because starting with 11 guys, they went out proclaiming that good news. This is a world-changing force. Now, it doesn't look like a world-changing force. As we'll come to find out, these guys were not the sharpest tools in the shed. But this is part of the genius that we see in Jesus. This was his strategy for reaching the world with the good news of his kingdom. And it is so counterintuitive to the way we think. I think, okay, if we want to take the gospel to the world, what do we need to do? We need to plan innovative strategies, plot elaborate schemes. We need to organize conventions and develop programs and create events, draw the biggest crowds with the biggest names, do mega this and mega that. But what does Jesus do? He strolls up on a mountain and calls a small group of normal, ordinary people whom he would entrust with his power to share life together to become a family together, and to spread good news together. To be with the author of life, with all authority in the universe, the one who desires us. What could be better than this? And then to go out as his representatives with his authority and his grace and his love to lead other people to life. So that's the question. Does what I just described describe your life? Don't settle for being in the crowd. There are multitudes of people who are using Jesus as a means to an end, spending their lives focused on things they can receive from Jesus and missing out on the joy of being in the smaller group of those called to be with Jesus, invited to be sent out from him. In other words, missing out on what it means to actually be the church. 
Let me close with some great news about how this is playing out in church family. So we're gathered right now here in Tyson's, in Loudoun, Prince William, Montgomery County. A group of... A group of called men and women will gather in the heart of Arlington to be with Jesus and to be sent out into that part of the city to proclaim Jesus. Watch this video with me. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I'm Eric. Welcome to the new location of NBC Arlington. We are here in the courthouse neighborhood, right in the heart of Arlington. And we're looking forward to, and we're planning on having our services here of starting on November 21st at 9 a.m. We are excited about all that God will do through his people in this location. We spent a lot of time renovating this space and we realized that this building actually speaks to a deeper spiritual reality. Uh, let me explain. You see, our location is on the bottom floor of an 11-story building in which many different people from many different walks of life and many different organizations are working. And when you go out and you look around, you see many people spending their days in many different places like high-rise apartment buildings, bars and gyms and movie theaters and restaurants. And beneath it all, at the bottom of this 11-story building on the corner of Courthouse and 13th Street, God has placed a local church, NBC Arlington. And we feel like this speaks to even a deeper spiritual reality that just like we're at the bottom of this 11-story building beneath all of this activity, there's the reality of God in this world. He's beneath all of our work and living and breathing and striving and longing. As Paul said to the people at Areopagus, in him we live and we breathe and have our being. And so many people don't even realize that. They don't realize that God is a reality beneath it all. And our role here in this city is to make God known. And so I want to invite you to pray along with us that God will use this church for his glory, that many people will come to know him, and that his glory will be made known from this small location here in Arlington, and that we'll branch out to the four corners of the globe. Will you pray with us? And if you live in the area, we want to invite you to join us in this work. I look forward to seeing you guys soon. If you are near Arlington or want to be a part of what God's doing specifically there, I invite you next Sunday, 9 a.m. But regardless of where you are, who are you? Which group are you in? And I want to urge you today, based on the authority of God's Word, not to stay in the crowd. Don't live in the crowd. It's not life. Life is found here among the called, trusting Jesus as your life is the one who desires you and who is better than all the best things of this world put together. He is the end. So would you bow your heads with me? Just all across this room and other locations 
And I ask you to do that, just to bow your heads, close your eyes, just to focus for a moment, like put out all the noise and just you before God right now. Which group are you in? And I want to invite you, if, if maybe you're like, yeah, I've, I'm definitely in the crowd. I've been in the crowd my whole life. Or maybe, maybe you've drifted back into the crowd and ways even like I described earlier in my life. I just want to invite you either for the first time or in a fresh way just to pray right now and to say to God, I need you to say in your heart, I want you, I trust that you are better than all the best things of this world put together. I have sought stuff of this world and I find myself coming up empty but I trust today that you are fullness that you are life and you are joy and you are peace it's all found in you And so just say to God please forgive me for turning to all these other things I trust what Jesus has done on the cross to pay the price for all my sins and to make it possible for me to be in relationship with you. I trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of my life. As my life, I trust you. As you pray that, know that you're praying to the God who desires you, loves you, desires to satisfy you, in ways that supersede everything else in this world. God, we, we praise you for your desire for us. And we pray that you would forgive us for all the ways we have, even as I've confessed today, we have sought you as a means to an end. As if there's something better or more satisfying or more fulfilling than you. Pray that you'd forgive us for how we have exalted your good gifts above you as the giver of those gifts. Pray that we would live this called life. God, I pray this over every single person in the sound of my voice, even as I pray this over my own life. God, help us. Help us to live out of the overflow of your desire for us and your love for us. Seeking you is the end. Change our hearts that we might say, one thing I seek, one thing I just want you, God, to live as Christ in my life. May this be our prayer, and may we come together, God. Would you raise up groups all across this church family who are enjoying being with you and enjoying going out with your spirit and your authority and spreading your grace among so many people around us we know who need your grace and your love. God, would. Would you do what you did in this group in Mark chapter 3 and our church family and groups among us? May, may you multiply the gospel in ways that are shaping of lives for all of eternity. God, we pray all of these things with overwhelming gratitude for your grace and our lives and your glory as the giver of every good gift. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.
All the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. God is sovereign, and God certainly is over all things, and he is sovereign over Jonah being cast into the sea, and there's no doubt about that. But why is it that Jonah was cast in the sea? Because he didn't want to repent, right? He didn't repent in chapter 1. He told the sailors, throw me overboard and the sea will be calm, right? Jonah is the one that told them to throw him overboard, right? Jonah's responsible ultimately for going in the sea. He's part of this discipline that God is sovereign over. And in a large view, yes, thou hast cast him into the sea. God, you're sovereign over this. I'm here because you're sovereign. But we need to remember, this kind of gives us an insight into Jonah's heart. He's not totally there yet. We don't want to go black and white and say Jonah's totally unrepentant or Jonah's repentant. He's in the middle here. He's acknowledging things. But he's not totally there, as we will see in chapter 3 and see in chapter 4, right? He's angry in chapter 4. He is reluctant in chapter 3 but yet he is obeying, as I've shared. But this is horrifying language. Jonah is underwater. He's engulfed. Billows and breakers passing over him. He's seeing the tops of the waves underneath. He is aligning himself heavily with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 69. Jonah, yet unlike the psalmist David in 69, doesn't acknowledge sin here yet. But what's the point? He's drowning. He's really moments from dying. And now he's in the belly of the fish recalling this. Now, at this point, there is a horrifying realization that God is going to let him die. Verses 4 through 6. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me. 
Notice Jonah makes a declaration. He has been expelled from God's sight. I have been expelled from thy sight. The Hebrew word, it means driven out. It's the same word God used in Genesis when he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. It is the same word used throughout the early chapters of the Bible to speak of the inhabitants of the land being driven out by the Israelites. It speaks of being driven out with the idea of separation. It was also translated divorce. There is a separation. There is a driving away. There is a separation. And Jonah says, I have been driven out from your sight. He is drowning, and this is what is coming to mind when he is drowning. I have been expelled. Driven out, divorced from your sight. It's pretty serious. Now the latter portion is very difficult to interpret, and I didn't mention this earlier, but there are many portions in chapter 2 which are very difficult to interpret. And I'm going to share what I know, and hopefully it will be a help to you. He says, nevertheless, I will look towards thy holy temple. There's a distinct possibility with some textual issues in that phrase that it could say that I would never see your holy temple which tends to be the opposite. There's also the distinct possibility that he is saying, how shall I again see your temple? Now these are in direct opposite. One is an affirmation, I'm going down, but I'm going to see your temple again. Another one is saying, how am I going to see your temple? I am expelled from your sight. Well, which one is it? I'm not sure, actually. The net translation goes with that I might never see your holy temple again. It's possible, and they give a lot of evidence for that. What temple is he talking about? He says, see your temple again, which implies the physical temple in Jerusalem, which represents the dwelling place of God. They knew it wasn't the dwelling place of God. Solomon shared that when it was built. You don't dwell in places made by human hands, but it represented the heavenly temple. Quite possibly, Jonah is saying, I'm going down, and I'm never going to see the temple again. I'm dying. I think that in context is the best But certainly there could be an affirmation of faith there too. Nevertheless, I will look again towards thy temple. Maybe he is affirming the relationship of the heavenly temple. Okay, I'm expelled, I'm dying, but I'm still yours and I'm going to see you. I'm not sure what it is, but the point of this passage, as we will see, is Jonah is going down. That's the point. Later on in verse 7, he says, While I was fanning away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to, same phrase, into thy holy temple. He's pointing to, obviously, the dwelling place of God, the heavenly temple there. So what do we make of this portion in verse 4? I believe Jonah is speaking of the earthly temple, which represents the heavenly one, and thus making a declaration. He either is going to see it again, or he is cast from his sight. I lean towards the one that he, how shall I see your holy temple? And he's really saying, how am I going to see your temple again if I drown? I think in context that's maybe more closer, but I won't die for that interpretation. The point is, he's cast from God's sight. He is expelled. He is drowning. And notice he is surrounded by water about to die. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me, weeds wrapped around my head. Pretty simple language, he's underwater. In the depths of the sea, he's got seaweed around his head. He's going down. It's horrifying language, and there is a horrifying realization that maybe God's going to let him die. God is letting him get to within an inch of dying. This is pretty serious discipline. Serious discipline. Verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. He's talking about descending down. 
to the bottom of the sea. Jonah's going down and he sees the earth as his tomb. He says, the earth with its bars were around me forever. I am in the earth now in that sense of dying. And he says, forever. Forever. That's a statement of unchangingness. He's saying, it's done. And we know from Scripture it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. The death rate is one per person. Folks, do we recognize the extent of God's discipline on Jonah's life? That's really what he's trying to express here in his prayer, how desperate his circumstance was as he is in the fish. I was drowning. I was going under. I was dying. Well, have you ever drowned? Come close to drowning? It is a horrifying experience as I read from those who have come close or started to drown. How long does it take to drown? How long was Jonah conscious as he was going under? Certainly he was conscious. He is recounting this prayer. He is recounting himself fainting away. How many minutes does it take? They say it takes anywhere from two to three minutes to lose consciousness, five to ten minutes to die. When water begins to enter the airway, the throat spasms, shutting down the passage of the lungs. The mechanism keeping water out of the lungs continues to operate until the person loses consciousness. It is a horrible, horrible way to die, and God is letting it happen. How far will God go to discipline his children? With Jonah, it's pretty far. It's pretty far. Now, how do we know if we've responded to his discipline? How do we know? Well, before that, we need to recognize that he is on the point of his deathbed. That's the point of this passage. Don't forget the context. Jonah is disobeying God. He is taking himself out of the sphere in which God has called him to serve. God said, Jonah, go proclaim against Nineveh. Get up and go. This is what I'm calling you to do. Jonah thwarts that, chapter 4, to forestall that because he's got an issue with the Ninevites. He doesn't believe that the salvation of the Ninevites is a good thing, that what God does is good. He knew God would save them if the word was proclaimed because God is a compassionate God, chapter 4. But he doesn't believe that, so he is going the other way. He is disobeying God in the sphere in which God has called him to serve. And this is very serious. And folks, God has called us to serve one another. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't just get saved and go your own way. You are a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord has declared in his word what you are to do. And there's a lot more commands that he has given us than he gave Jonah. And some of you might have removed yourself from the sphere in which you could obey God by going to an ungodly church or not going to church at all or not being in fellowship. You've removed yourself from that. And I warn you from the perspective of God's discipline of Jonah, it's pretty serious. And God does discipline his children. And Jonah is being disciplined to the point of death. Well, would God have let Jonah die? Would God ever discipline anyone to the point of death? Would he discipline a believer to death? He did in the Corinthian church. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, as we have the exhortation in terms of when we come together to remember what Christ had done. Serious, serious thing. The body of Christ comes together to remember the death of Christ, his shed blood and his body given for us, and the Corinthians were having a party. It was all about the Corinthians rather than about Christ. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You need to examine yourself. And I always exhort you every time because the consequences are severe. Examine yourself. Don't proclaim his death and your forgiveness of sins and hold sin in your heart. Serious stuff. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. He's using a euphemism. Some are dead because of this. For if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened or disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. That you wouldn't be condemned with the world, God may discipline you. I'm not saying you fear that. I say you fear God and obey God. You don't have anything to worry about, right? You don't need to look over your shoulder when you're obeying God, do you? When I wasn't obeying God, I was looking over my shoulder all the time because I did fear his discipline. And maybe some of you fear that too. Jonah was disciplined to the point of death. But God's sovereign compassion was exhibited towards Jonah as it is throughout the book. His compassion towards the Phoenician sailors in chapter 1. His compassion towards Jonah in chapter 2. His compassion towards the Ninevites in chapter 3. His compassion explained in chapter 4. God's compassionate. Verse 6. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. It's over. It's over. But... Thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He's in the whale. He can't see a thing. He's alive. And he's recalling that God saved his life. You did it, Lord. You answered my prayer. Folks, the first step of getting out of discipline is praying. You need to pray. And God heard his prayer. He's alive. But the discipline's not over yet, right? He's still in the fish, right? Question is, did he die? It's possible. Not sure. The language sure points to the fact he was about to die. That we know for sure. Some interpreters believe that he did die and that God resurrected him on the third day in the fish and then he prayed. That's possible too. God can do anything. The point is he was about to die and God saved him, whatever it was. Now he's inside the fish. An awful circumstance still. He's not standing on dry land saying, ah, it's all over. He's in a difficult situation, awful situation, but he's praying. And he's saying, but thou hast brought my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God. God saved Jonah. Now Jonah summarizes this now, I believe, while he's in there. Verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. He was Going down two to three minutes, five, you're out and you're gone while I was fainting away. That word translated I in the NASB is really the term my soul, nefesh, my life. My life was slipping away and I remembered, called to mind, turned attention to, recalled the Lord. It's amazing how we see believer and non-believer at the point of death turning their attention to the Lord at times. Here Jonah turned his attention to the Lord. He prayed and God heard him because Jonah was saved. 
He did fear the Lord, I believe. And God heard his prayer. Now, some of you here today may find yourselves at some time at the point of death conscious, crying out to Jesus. Some of you who are not saved, crying out to Jesus, not to save you from sin, but from death. And God's word is clear. He doesn't hear. You don't want to get to that point. Jonah was saved and he cried out and God saved him. If you're not saved and it gets that far, what does the word of God say? Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither his ear so dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Jonah was heard. If you get in this circumstance and it's not for the salvation of sins, not going to be hurt. I remember example, and I used to be a corporate pilot, so I used to study plane crashes, and I still do. It's something, I don't like the death and destruction. It's an awful thing, but I study those events and the accidents so that I would learn how to be a better pilot so that I would not get in that circumstance. And I remember a cockpit voice recording of a Western Airlines DC-10 in Mexico City at 79, where the captain is blaspheming God, just swearing and using God's name in vain. And it turns out that he went and landed on the wrong runway, noticed at the last minute, hit a truck. And at that moment, there's the horrifying recognition on the tape where he cries out, no longer blaspheming God, he cries out, Oh, Jesus! If he wasn't saved, do you think he got saved then? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear. Jonah was a believer, and God heard him. He didn't have to. If he would have died, he would have gone in the Lord's presence. He would have been in paradise, like the thief on the cross. But God did save him. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish, but he was within an inch of death. It's serious, serious stuff. The Ninevites were within an inch of death because God was bringing this judgment on them. And Jonah was too. But it was his discipline. Don't let it get to this point, believer, where it's this bad and you're crying out to God. Don't let it get that point. Obey the Lord. Obey what he said in his word. In the midst of God's discipline, Jonah prays and God intervenes. And we're going to see also later on at the end of this prayer in the fish, God intervenes again. Are you being disciplined by the Lord? Are you in a dark, slimy, difficult situation? Cry out to the Lord. So then we have the depths of God's discipline brought to within an inch of his life. Jonah was at death's door. Now we see, I believe, the fruit of God's discipline. Where we notice Jonah's deliverance from death brings him to declare three things. Verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay salvation is from the Lord. This is a change for Jonah. Albeit he is not fully there as we see in chapter 3 and 4. But we're going to see in chapter 3 that Jonah does obey the Lord. Disobedient, now obedient. And then God's going to work on his attitude, just like those in Haggai. Now, verse 8 is extremely difficult to translate. There's seven words there. There's only about five in Hebrew. We can understand the first part pretty easily. It says, those who regard, it's a participial phrase, 
those who keep, those who observe, those who regard. Now the word idol is not here. It's actually vain emptiness or vain lying emptiness. Vain emptiness. The point is there's nothing behind it. What's behind an idol? Nothing. Whatever the idol might be, there's no power. Those who keep regard, recall, observe vain idols. And he may be quoting Psalm 31.6, I hate those who regard, same phrase, vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now he says here, the second half, and this is the hard part to translate, then our text says forsakes their faithfulness. I don't understand what that means in that context. It's very difficult to interpret. So we have to look at what this word faithfulness is here, and it is the Hebrew word hesed. It is a well-used Hebrew word, and it is used almost always to describe God's loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping love. Chesed. Certainly it has an element of faithfulness, but it's more than that. It is loyal love. Unchanging love. It's translated loving kindness often. It's translated unchanging love. There's certainly faithfulness within that, but I think the NASB translators have missed it here in translating it just faithfulness. Indeed, later on in chapter 4, look a little farther in verse 2. He says, And I prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. He's speaking about the salvation of the Ninevites. And for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in hesed, loving kindness. As I looked throughout the Old Testament, I looked at almost every occurrence. I didn't look at every one, so you can do that in your own time because it used a lot. But just about every single one is never used to speak of an attribute of the unsaved, usually of God or those who are saved. Chesed. It's God's loyal, keeping love. Okay, with that in mind, what does it mean here? I don't think it's speaking of unsaved idolaters forsaking their own chesed, because they don't have any to start with. The book of Jonah is about the Lord's chesed, the Lord's loving kindness, the Lord's saving love. God saves the Phoenicians. God saves Jonah. God saves the Ninevites. God is a loving, kind God. And the immediate context of this passage is salvation. He says in verse 9, the salvation is from the Lord. So what does he mean here? And this is the hard part, and hopefully you're still with me. It could mean your loving kindness or the loving kindness of you. I think it's the loving kindness of them. In context, God's saving loving kindness. Those who regard vain, empty things forsake, in context, God's loving kindness of them. It's difficult, but I think that's what it means. When you go after vain idols, you forsake his loving kindness. And I believe that's what Jonah is talking about here. i 
us the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease. Tears, music in the sinner's ears, tears, life and health and Breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood avail for me. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Be blind, behold, your Savior come. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.